Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question Uncut. This is a sister podcast, The Normal Episodes, where every fortnight we'll bring you the raw, unedited conversations with our interviewees. This week, Dan and Will speak to Sir Vince Cable, a former member of Parliament who led the Liberal Democrat Party from 2017 to 2019. This podcast is unedited, so a warning that there may be one or two swear words at some points in the podcast. If you're enjoying our episodes, please let us know by leaving a review and a five-star rating. On to the podcast. Enjoy. We've only got two minutes for our pre-chat, so we better make sure it's short, spicy and entertaining. Yeah, entertain me. Okay, well, um, <laughs> perhaps I oh, can yes. make a start. Who are we speaking to this week? Sir Vince Cable. What? Sir Vince you might, Cable? You might say he's not an entrepreneur. I'd say yes. I've subtly, um, I've subtly rebranded the website. The sorry, I've subtly rebranded the podcast as a podcast for entrepreneurs and leaders. I, I thought I thought it'd be quite interesting and maybe quite useful. He's also he's involved in a few businesses. He's he's about to start a podcast. Really? We can exclusively reveal, I think maybe. He told me, yeah. What's it about? We're, Politics? We're an entrepreneur actually. Um, maybe we should get her on. Um, What's it about? I don't know, we can ask him. Um, cool. Well that's the that's the line of questioning sorted then. Yeah, so he said to me yeah, he's doing it with um, Priya Lakani, who Priya is uh, an edtech entrepreneur. She looks quite interesting. Um, cool. Yeah, he's starting it in the new year, so that's interesting. And um, yeah, he does have some business interests. He also used to work in the business world. He was the chief economist for Shell before um, entering Parliament. Right. I think, yeah, he had several... I mean, obviously, I've been doing some research into him. And um, <laughs> as is my want... He's just arrived in the waiting room. Shall I let him in? Maybe he can tell um, us. Something. Hold on, it's not actually 9am. Oh, no, it is 9am. Um, so, <laughs> okay. yeah, go for it. I feel less prepared than usual, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> Good evening. Hi. Hi, Vince. How are you doing? Very well. Yes, we seem to have made contact exactly at five o'clock, so that's a good yeah, start. Yeah, perfect. No, we really appreciate you being punctual. Um, how, how's your, um, we we're just talking actually, how's your, uh, you're, you're about to start your own podcast, you told me. Yes, I hope in the new year. Yes, I've got a co-presenter. We're, we're currently working out um, what to do and how to do it. I mean, I, I guess it's not as straightforward as just saying we're going to have a podcast, right? Uh, are you finding it quite tricky running it? Um, no, actually, not not too bad. I mean, <laughs> we we it was quite a lot of work to start with, wasn't it, Dan? But um, we've um, so Dan and I uh, are university friends. Dan's an entrepreneur. I'm obviously a journalist, and I'm, we've got another really good friend who is a. Um, professional broadcast journalist so he's yeah. our producer and he I was going to say the, that's the trick side of things. <laughs> <laughs> have a friend who's incredibly good at editing and producing and he can make um, well in our case some very poor questions sound a lot cleverer afterwards in the cutting room <laughs> <laughs> well thank, thanks very much for, for joining us Vince do you prefer to be called Vince or Sir Vince? Vince uh, is fine yeah, yeah. 
Do you, do many do many, do you get do many people call you Sir Vince? Because I, I guess that's um, people. Well, knew... I, it tends to be sort of older people who are rather old fashioned, or <laughs> yeah. young people who are somewhat intimidated. Feel very yeah. polite. So, um, but most people who I know and work with have no problem um, with single names. Yeah. <laughs> I um, wonder which okay, one but... of those two categories you fall into, Will. Well, I'll call you Vince. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, this uh, this podcast, as as I said, um, uh, we're recording now, um, and I, I think the the producer pretty much picks from from whatever he's interested in. But um, so the idea we had was um, we started off by interviewing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and um, we're moving on to more broadly leaders. Um, mm. And I thought you'd be a really interesting person to have on um, because you know, you've led a political party and not many people in, in history really have done that. Um, and also I know you've, um, you've, you've worked in the business world. So I, I thought overall you'd be a really interesting guest for us. Um, and what we usually do to start off is we get people to talk us through their, um, their professional lives. Um, yours is, I mean, you've done a huge amount, so um, I think we may have to cut, cut it short a bit, but I'd be really interested to speak about um, your your upbringing um, briefly if possible. So, so you're from York originally, is that right? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I, I was there for the first sort of 18, 20 years of my life. I went to a local, mm. local grammar school. Yeah. Uh, my parents were factory workers when I was young, but they were very upwardly mobile and ambitious, uh, my father particularly. And we gradually progressed from the terrace house with the outside bath to a semi-detached house to a detached house. I mean, you know, the progression through the uh, English middle class. Um, and by the time I'd left home, you know, I suppose they were fairly well established in York society. But we started with humble beginnings. Mm. And so, and, and you experienced that change from from the humble beginnings to to the more middle class side of York in your as you grew up. Yes, uh, I, I think so. But I, I, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't claim to be sort of from a depressed working class or anything. I mean, it was fairly comfortable. We enjoyed the you know rising prosperity of the nineteen fifties. You know. Cars, telephones, refrigerators, washing machines came in a fairly steady succession, and uh, I'd I'd passed the eleven plus. I mean, there's a story there, of course, but and was part of the you know the meritocratic um, generation who were destined to go off to university and do do such things. Hmm. And um, you you don't have much of a, a Yorkshire accent now. Is that something that's changed over the years in in Westminster, well, I, or did you? I, Yes, I'm disappointed, but, <laughs> but having lived in Africa, Glasgow, London, Cambridge, um, rather more than I've lived in York, it would be surprising if I'd kept my Yorkshire accent. Yeah, I think there's still there's still a hint of it in there. I think, right, <laughs> just about here. Um, so you um, so you went to grammar school, Cambridge, um, and then you, you went into the, the world of business, I suppose, broadly. You, you went to work in Kenya and lots of other far-flung... Well, locations. Kenya wasn't business. It was, I was working for the finance ministry and the treasury. Um, mm. you know, so I was ludicrously over-promoted. It was just that there was a shortage of people staffing the post-independence government. And I was given a very you know, responsible job for which I was totally unqualified, negotiating aid and 
uh, overseeing big big projects, um, and that was two to three years. How old were you at the time? I was twenty twenty three, I think. Wow. Um, I just had a first first degree. I mean, I hadn't even done a master's, so my economics wasn't all that smart either. But it was it was you know university of life experience. It was very good for me, uh, if not for Kenya. <laughs> uh, but I, so you I, learnt, so you, you you kind of learnt um, economics on the on the job then, which I, I guess is not, quite yeah. quite yes. rare. I also met a lovely woman who I married, and uh, well, I I'd, I'd met her previously in England, but um, I got married there, and a lot of my life was um, tied up with establishing you know personal relationships. But yeah, the professional side was was great, and I love Kenya, and I've got in laws there now, so I you know go back occasionally. And um, so you were there for three years. What um, what did you do after that? I mean, you worked in lots of different well, places. Well, I went to Glasgow, Glasgow University, offered me a lectureship. Again, they were rather different from today. You know, you have to have PhDs and you get a, a contract rather than a job. But in those days, um, it was fairly easy to walk into tenured um, lectureship roles. And I, I, I went to Glasgow for six years. Um, did my PhD while I was teaching and researching. Um, uh, and I suppose actually most of my time in Glasgow was spent in politics. I got involved in labour politics in the city, became a councillor um, and was involved running the city, which was actually much more absorbing than, than doing university research. But, so it was another sort of growing up stage. Mm. Did you always, when, when did you first... That's obviously when you first went into politics. Um, at well, in, in, a practi- in a practical sense, yes. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I dabbled at university. And, right. Uh, but, yeah, it was my first, you know, real, real experience of standing for elections and learning the ropes. And Glasgow is an interesting place to do it, of course. You know, there's, it's, you know sectarianism is quite strong, or it was then. Um, there was a lot of corruption around, but there was also some very fine idealistic people so i learned a lot mm. and um on on the whistle stop tour of, of your professional life what was next uh well what i was doing in uh, glasgow was doing some research on economics in latin america development economics and i then joined the foreign office in the latin american department um, and spent several years doing standard, you know, diplomatic work. I was based in London, but dealing with um, Venezuela, Cuba, South America, or Central America, um, which was, you know, quite interesting getting to understand how Whitehall worked. Um, I wouldn't claim it was the most intellectually stimulating or productive era of my life, but it, it was it was useful. And I went off from there to a place called the Overseas Development Institute, which is a very good NGO, um, and research institute, and I sort of organised research there on trade policy. Did a lot of work on India, um, and that I, I guess I was probably there seven or eight years, something like that. Hmm. Um, and after that, was that the stage when you went to, off to work for Shell? No, I, in between times, I went to work for the Commonwealth Secretary General, Sonny Ramphal. It was very rewarding because he got me into. Things like the Brandt Commission, the Brandtland Commission on Sustainable Development, did a lot of 
quite serious work on international economic problems, set up an equity fund for the Commonwealth. Um, oh, that was that, but, uh, but after that, um, uh, I, I, I did indeed join Shell, uh, their planning department, um, and it was involved in scenario planning and, and finished up as their chief economist. Hmm. Sounds like a, um, a great title to have. Why? And, and then I guess from there is where, where you went on to, to go full. full yes, I, I was quite ancient by the time I went into politics. I was 54. Oh, be. <laughs> so I had a 20-year career in Parliament, but I was already starting when a lot of people are retiring. So it mm. was seeing politics in a slightly different way from many people who go into Parliament as their first or second job and whose ambition is to climb up the greasy pole. I have no expectations of doing that. Yeah. So I guess, uh, how old were you when you, when you entered Parliament? And you tried a, f- a few times before, before you Yeah, it was my fifth, fifth attempt, actually. Um, and it, there was almost 30 years between when I first stood and I got in. So I, I suppose I was rewarded to some extent for patience. Um, but it's, it's a complicated story. I won't go into it. But I, I'd stood in York a couple of times for the Liberal SDP Alliance. I had stood in Glasgow um, and I'd stood in Twickenham before I finally got in. Mm. And what, what spurred you on to, to keep trying? Did you find that each of those defeats quite deflating or were you yes. generally expected to lose most of them? Well, I think the first two times, well, the first time I was expected to lose, but the, the experience in York was quite deflating because it was... Uh, I'd left the Labour Party to join Roy Jenkins and Shirley Williams in this uh, marvellous new thing called the SDP. And we were going to sweep the country. And it looked for a moment as if we were, actually. The SDP got up to something like 50% in the opinion polls. Um, and we were all looking forward to coming back to Parliament as a revolutionary new movement. Um, but then we had the Falklands War. And it, you know, the balloon was pricked. Um, and, you know, I didn't get anywhere near getting elected when the election came, although we were one of the target seats. So, yes, it was a bit deflating. But I, I, I think one of the things that kept me going was my wife, um, Olympia, who uh, stood by me. And, you know, the fighting elections is quite um, time consuming and energy consuming, but she'd stuck by me. Um, and she'd got very ill. She, she had cancer. And... Mm. Uh, but she insisted that I kept going, having invested so much time and effort in it. And I suppose that was more than anything else what uh, gave me the will to keep going. Becoming an MP is obviously um, uh, a fantastically difficult thing to do, and in particular for people who are not uh, standing for one of the two primary parties. Um, Do you think that that is uh, right and as it should be so that the best people get to the top, or do you think that the system should be changed? Uh, well, I mean, there are aspects of the system that should be changed. I mean, I'm a very strong advocate of voter reform. You know, the first-past-the-post system is dreadful. But in terms of MPs' responsibilities and role, uh, actually, I think I think probably it's about right. I mean, you know, we, we have constituency responsibilities. They're serious. You're recognised as a local figure. You're recognised as somebody who solves personal problems. Uh, I think that's a very, very important part of the role. And I took it very seriously, actually. 
um, the think MPs should. I mean, the, the, uh, there are there are some politicians, big parties particularly, who take their constituencies for granted. I mean, they're safe Labour or Tory seats. Um, they don't bother. Um, they just concentrate on building their career at Westminster. But actually, I think the way that I and my colleagues did it, and, and indeed quite a lot of Tories and Labour people in marginal seats, is, is to invest a lot of time and effort building up a local power base. Um, and that was certainly how I started and learned a lot. I think one of the aspects of being an MP, which is probably not fully understood. It's rather like being self-employed. You know, I'd come out of a big multinational company and you're part of a hierarchy. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're on your own. I mean, you've got to hire staff, um, manage your own accounts. Um, and, you know, you're accountable to the people who voted for you. Uh, but otherwise, you're very much on your own. I mean, in Parliament, you're subject to a party whip, but you can disregard that. Um, in, in extremis, but it it is very much like being a self-employed person. Mm. What um what 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 did you learn in what I mean if you had to pick out one thing that you learned from from being an MP a, a self-employed MP um, that you think could be useful for for people leading businesses more generally? Is there anything that that would stick out in your mind? Um. Well, I, th I think two things, really. I mean, one is that you, you really do have to invest in a, in a good team. You know, I've seen so many cases of colleagues whose uh, political work at Westminster fell apart because they didn't have good staff. Um, and because you're operating a fairly small team with, say, three or four people in the constituency and a couple of people at Westminster, you've got to have the right people. And I was lucky, or you know, I probably learned something in life, but I was fortunate enough to have a really good, loyal, and professional group of people. And that, you know, that helped me to function. But there were others who had enormous turnover of staff, um, or disloyalty, people who ran with gossip stories and all the rest of it. But so, that, so you, you, having having a very good hiring policy for your core staff is absolutely fundamental. I, that was rubbed into me subsequently and became a minister too, but as an MP, it's the first thing. And I think the second is that it's very easy when you're an MP to be an expert in everything and actually in nothing. So you have to develop one or two um, areas of competence and where you're listened to with some respect and I suppose I concentrate on economic policy finance built up a certain reputation during the banking crisis um, and there were one or two other issues like policing that I got into but I think you, you have to you have to learn how to specialize intelligently otherwise you, you're dissipating a lot of effort so if uh, becoming an MP is like finding yourself as a self-employed person, almost similar to running a small business, what does the transition feel like when you become a minister and start? Does it feel like you're still running that small business? Or oh, no, how absolutely horrific contrast. I mean, <laughs> literally within a day, you're going from an operation where you're responsible for five or six people, in my case, 
to where I was responsible directly for 4,000 and indirectly for, I think, quarter of a million. Um, and, you know, your private office, in my case, was about five or six civil servants and dozens of other people, you know, who I was having to deal with on a daily basis. So you're dealing with a massive operation. Certainly, not all ministers are the same, but if you're a department like mine or um, DCLG, local government or welfare, um, you know, these are very, very big operations and you're having to do with large numbers of people and get your head around a lot of very complex issues very quickly. Um, no, it's a, it's a completely new experience, and I, I, I don't think I'm the only one who was wholly unprepared for it and had to learn very quickly on the job. Mm. Obviously, uh, the civil service have got their own hierarchy and structures already in place, and there's been sitcoms and everything written about how uh, politicians can come in and interact with that. How? What was your feeling on how hands-on to be? Was your instinct to kind of stop and first see how things were already going? Or did you already come in with day one with a, a list of things that you wanted to do immediately? Uh, no, I, I didn't have a list of things. I would have done. I mean, I was hoping to be working on broader economic policy and banking at the Treasury. But, you know, the way the coalition turned out, I was given a department for which I had no preparation. Um, I, you know, I knew something about um, the issues of, of, of business and industrial policy and trade, but I hadn't prepared for it. Um, but I learned very quickly that it was terribly important to give the staff a steer. You know, you've got all these hundreds, thousands of people and they need some motivation. They need to know what the minister wants, what you're trying to achieve. So certainly within a few days meeting the core staff, then I had a meeting with all 3,000 of them, three, 4,000 of them in uh, Methodist Central Hall, was just setting out a clear agenda. The, these are the things I want to achieve, A, B, C, D. Um, yeah, may I'm not so a good all idea. These people, all, all these people were gathered together in the same place? Yeah, on one occasion, yeah, right at the beginning. And I did How intimidating it. was that? Um, I, thought it, well, I, thought, I thought there was a real warmth, actually, um, yeah. And actually, my happiest experience of my whole period in government was addressing a meeting like that at my very end, when I when at the end of the government, and they all turned up again. But I know I think it, it is a bit intimidating. But if you're a, a politician, you, you you're used to speaking to big audiences, so that's not a problem in itself. And the, the intimidating bit was being very clear what you were going to say and what the mm -hmm. priorities were. But I set some priorities, and it it, it worked well. Yeah. Getting a team of people to all rally around one vision is always uh, challenging in any kind of business. But I imagine in a situation like that, where the vision has changed almost overnight from a completely different one uh, for a completely different minister and then on to yours uh, with people, many of whom you've never met before. Um, were there any other kind of techniques to keep that clarity of vision all in one page? Or is it just about um, the speeches and those large set piece uh, sort of meetings like the one you talked about? Well, I, I had this kind of hierarchy of meeting. I mean, every day I'd meet with my private office, um, every week or so with the permanent secretary, every month with the top um, 20 or so officials in the department, quarterly with the top 200, and then annually with the whole lot. And there would be, you know, distance um, 
participation from Sheffield and Cardiff, where we had outposts. But I, I, I did devote an enormous amount of time to also to getting out in the field, because um, it's very easy when you get stuck in an office in London to develop a certain view of the world. But so I, I made sure every week I tried to organise a visit to a you know factory to some local chamber of commerce or something, and that helped keep your feet on the ground and it also gives the de de departmental people some reference point in terms of what what they're doing and how it helps me to deliver a political outcome as a as a liberal democrat mp um you must have it, i guess i guess the chances of you becoming a government minister at some point must have been quite remote um, but obviously the, the way the 2010 election turned out, that happened. Um, can you talk us through um, the, the period in which you realised that you were going to become a government minister and, and how you came to work to, to take on the business role? Because like you say, you ideally, I mean, it sounded like you favoured a, a role within the Treasury. How, how did that all unfold? Well, it was quite a complicated story. Uh, I, I mean, you're right, until quite close to the 2010 election, I don't think anybody expected the Lib Dems to be in government. Um, and if we were, I think the assumption was we'd be working with the Labour Party because there'd been quite a lot of tactical collaboration going back to the Tony Blair, Paddy Ashdown days. But probably three months out from the 2010 election, it became clear that we might be holding the balance of power. And the first awful thought started dawning on people that we might finish up working with Messrs Cameron and Osborne, which was not a, I guess essentially it's a sort of centre-left party and not a conservative party. And certainly I was that way inclined. And the prospect wasn't something that we regarded with great relish, but... Um, when the election came and we got the result, um, it was clear there was no alternative. I mean, I personally spent quite a lot of time exploring a coalition with Jordan Brown. I knew him quite well, got on well with him. Um, but it wasn't, the numbers were not there. Um, and it wouldn't have been possible to form a stable government with any other configuration other than the Lib Dems and Conservatives working together. So uh, I wasn't happy about it. A lot of my colleagues weren't happy about it, but we accepted the political logic of the situation and agreed to do the coalition. And we prepared this coalition agreement uh, based on policy. It was remarkably easy, actually. But um, then there was the hard bit of, of actually governing. In terms of my own position, um, I suppose if I thought I was ever going to get into government, the job I really wanted to do was being Chancellor of the Exchequer, but that wasn't realistic. I mean, there, there were six Tories to every one Lib Dem, and you know they weren't going to give a job to one of the top four jobs to uh, me. Um, so I had to accept that. It was I, I could see trouble coming because uh, it was very clear that in the business department. Because we had higher education and all these awful problems around university funding and fees were coming down the track. And I did discuss with Nick Clegg at the time, look, you know, we're going to have trouble here if you put me in that department. Um, and I, we knew there was a train crash coming, but, you know, we had to get on with it. And uh, actually, the main part of the 
job initially was preparing for the first round of spending cuts uh, because of the extreme kind of budget crisis that we inherited. So how did you, um, the, the process of you becoming um, business secretary, was that, um, was that David Cameron or, or Nick Clegg? No, no, no. The appointments within the coalition were decided by the uh, heads of the two parties. So uh, basically Nick Clegg decided who the Lib Dem ministers would be and what job they'd have. And Cameron did the same for his people. And there'd been an agreement between the two of them about how the jobs would be divided up. Um, no, it, it, Cameron was never my boss. I mean, I had, you know, relatively little dealing with him, actually, on a personal level. I had to work quite a lot with George Osborne because we, we had overlapping interests in banking and economic policy. Um, but no, I, essentially, Nick Clegg was um, <clears throat> the person I reported to. We obviously know that um, yourself and George Osborne had, and presumably still have, very different um political and economic views, but what was the working relationship like on a day-to-day basis? Was it productive? Actually, it was was very good. I mean, he's a, actually found him good company and it wasn't sort of pompous. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd found in the debates before the election that I was, wasn't too impressed, didn't have much economic knowledge, etc. I felt, I suppose, a bit superior, but I think when I had to deal with him in the government, uh, I recognised that he had real... He had a very good political brain, uh, a very smart guy, actually. Um, and, of course, he was effectively co-prime minister with, with Cameron. I mean, they, they operated as a duo, so, you know, we had to deal with him. Um, so, you know, we had regular meetings. They were always amicable. I mean, you know, I had policy disagreements, but they weren't personal disagreements. Mm. Okay. Um, so... So after after those five years, you um, you uh, 2015 election um, came. Um, what was what was that that experience like after five years in in government to uh, to then go th- go through the 2015 election? Well, it was abs- an absolute disaster. I mean, the, mm. I had full, long since fallen out with Nick about the campaign. Um, he was campaigning for another coalition. I thought that was a disaster. And we needed to be striking out on our own. But anyway, that's w- w- the way we went into the election. Well, the, t- the Tories were determined to get rid of us. And they did so in a very ruthless and very effective way by saying, um, you know, if you don't vote for us, you'll get Miliband and the SNP. Um, and a lot of my constituents bought that argument. As, and they did it right across the, you know, the Lib Dem team. We started with 56 MPs. We finished up with eight. And the main reason, there, was, there were quite a lot of kind of tactical, Labour tactical voters who switched out of annoyance with the coalition. But the main reason we were defeated was because the Tories uh, ruthlessly um, cut away the, the, you know, the basis of our support. And I was one of the casualties. Um, it was, was quite a humbling and extremely unhappy experience. But as, as you know, within a couple of years, um, unexpectedly, there was another election and I got a chance to come back again. Hmm. Um, and just um, going back slightly, but um, so your disagreement with, with Nick Clegg, I mean, I get a similar question to the George Osborne one, I suppose. But um, was that a personal thing or was that purely 
um, professional um, falling out, as it were? Well, the, 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 it was, I think, mainly professional. We're both, we're both grown-up people. Um, but I disagreed from the earlier part of the coalition about certain key elements in economic policy. I thought we should be doing much more public investment. Um, people rather lazily use this word austerity, but, but actually that there are aspects of austerity that are more sensible than others. And cutting back on public investments and infrastructure has been a terrible idea, and I opposed it from the outset. Whereas Nick Clegg and Danny, who was our man in the Treasury, um, you know, supported the Treasury view, uh, and I disagree with it. Um, and I think later in the coalition, there was an argument about whether we should stay through the five years. And there was an argument for that, continuity, delivering, etc., or whether we should get out six months beforehand or whatever and campaign as Liberal Democrats. Um, and, and, you know, we, we just disagreed on that. And actually, we, we went into the election in a very weak position with very few political defences. Mm. Um, so, as you said, um, you lost your seat, um, but, but you were able to come back and um, you ended up as leader of the Lib Dem party. I mean, how did that compare with leading a, a department and, again, I suppose, leading a constituency office? What was What was that like? Well, what was gratifying was that I, two years after losing the seat, I got back with the biggest majority I'd ever had. And there was an awful lot of um, you know, people on the doorstep saying, you know, we made a mistake, we should have had you all along, etc. It was very gratifying, good for my ego, which had been very badly deflated two years earlier. Um, so, you know, winning the election was important personally. Um, but I returned to a um, team that, that was still quite badly defeat, depleted. You know, we only had 12. We had once had 60 or so in the mm. Charles Kennedy days. Um, so it was a very small team. Um, there wasn't an enormous amount of competition for the leadership, to be very frank. Um, I don't think the, the younger generation didn't feel ready, Joe Swinson, etc., um, and there wasn't too much competition amongst my peers. So um, I took the, and anyway, they decided not to compete with me. So I, I took the leadership unopposed, which made life easier, but was actually quite problematic in the long run because there was a kind of slight lack of legitimacy, you know, if you just um, assumed a role without competition. But um, yeah, it was, it was a very, very difficult job, actually, because we'd had two bad elections. There was a real severe morale problem. Um, somebody, you know, my job was to try and point the way forward to a recovery, but it wasn't obvious how it would happen. Mm. And the overwhelming problem was actually just getting heard. You know, when you've only got 12 MPs, you rarely get called in parliament. Uh, the BBC take the view that you're a very minority party. Why should they have you on? And the contrast with being a cabinet minister was that when I was secretary of state, uh, I could get on television every day if I wanted to, but, but as leader of the party, you know, you were lucky to get on once a month. Uh, so that was the, the big contrast. It was being outside the, um, the political front line. Um, but the, the one thing that, that worked for me and for the party was that we'd had a big influx of, anti-Brexit 
campaigners. And ironically, despite the very poor position in Parliament, we had a record number of members. We had over 100,000. Um, were very charged up and determined to fight Brexit. And they were looking for somebody to lead them. And so that gave me a role. And so most of my two years was, um, that was what it was about. It was about Brexit. Uh, but the particular way I tried to revive the party was through local government, concentrated very heavily on building up a council base again. And we indeed had a brilliant result in um, the local government elections in 2000 and was it, I forgot now, 19. Um, best ever results. And, I'd, you know, and I'd felt vindicated that we were on the way back um, uh, and that it had solid foundations. Mm. Um, so I'd just be interested to know, because I'm conscious we're um, running down on time slightly um, broadly, what you're up to now. I mean, you're, you're doing lots of things in your post-politics um, life, and I, I suppose you, um, it'd be good to know what's taking up most of your time currently. You've got your podcast coming up, but I imagine lots of other things going on as well. Well, I have a regular column in The Independent once a yeah. week. Um, I've been writing books. I've got a big book, uh, Money and Power, coming out in February, which is about leading political figures in modern history who influenced the way we do economics. So everybody from Alexander Hamilton and Peel through Bismarck to Lenin to Roosevelt to Mrs. Thatcher to Deng Xiaoping. Uh, it's a bit of a potpourri, but I think a reasonably good book. And I've also more recently got heavily involved in work on China. I'd got, so it was one of the things I did in government was building up the relationship with China. So I, I wrote this uh, short book, China Engage, which has proved very controversial and um, a lot of people love it, others hate it. Um, mm. And it's got me in the middle of quite a lot of controversy. Mm. And I'm writing a uh, it's not an autobiographical, but I'm writing an account of the last 10 years going over a lot of the history you've been asking about, the coalition yeah. years and subsequently. And what the way I'm writing it is partly as a kind of personal record of what happened. I've got an extensive collection of cuttings. Uh, and my wife, Rachel, um, is interpolating it with her own diary records. Now, this, it's not a kind of Sasha Squire um nasty venomous piece of gossip but but it does give a personal angle on you know what would otherwise perhaps be a rather dry political track so i'm, mm. I'm plowing through that too i imagine um you'd kind of associate a former business minister uh, sorry business secretary with um with um doing lots of um very highly paid speeches or even going to work for Facebook as, as Nick Clegg has. Um, what, what have you, I mean, presumably you may have had, had some, some speaking opportunities and things, but, but um, why haven't you, have you had many opportunities or, or why haven't you followed um, Nick Clegg say into going to work for a big company like Facebook or, or, um, or, or a bank or anything like that? What's, um, well, I, I am I am sort of non-executive director of two or three companies, but they're mm. small. I mean, they're, yeah. I went into them because they were interesting. You know, one's a social enterprise, one's uh, one's uh, an environmental startup. Um, mm. 
and they interest me. I mean, I mean, I have no particular interest in sitting on boards and uh, boards stiff for one thing. Um, and I, you know, I'm reasonably comfortable. I'm not interested in becoming a millionaire. Um, so yeah, I, I do business things if they're intellectually interesting, not for any other reason. And as for speech making, unfortunately, COVID has sort of killed that. Now, I do, I do quite a lot of speaking uh, with a, a very good agency, but you know that's um, that's in hibernation at the moment. Mm. Okay. Um, so we've just got a few more questions, since, um, which is just we do a quick fire round um, at the end of our interviews um, with a couple of um, this or that questions. Um, if that sounds okay. Um, so the, the first question is, do you prefer Boris Johnson or Donald Trump? Um, well, I think, I think I actually preferred Trump. I mean, it's an appalling character, but, you know, <laughs> you know, you know where you are. You know, he's, um, he's not a chameleon, you know, constantly changing in response to uh, shifts of opinion, but, you know, ha- had a very clearly defined view of the world and expressed it. Um, it's a pretty awful choice, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of follow-ups that we could ask on that, but it's probably not in the spirit of the quickfire round. So I'll go on. Yeah, for, but you, um, um, you did refuse to go to that to the uh, to the the Trump um, state dinner, didn't you, last year? So does that mean yeah, you? I've, re- I've written I've written on Trumponomics in this book on yeah. money and power as well. Looking yeah. forward to this book, definitely. <laughs> does that mean you wouldn't go to dinner with Boris Johnson then? No, 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 that's, no, no. I haven't actually. I get on reasonably well with Johnson. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was not in the spirit of the quickfire, Dan. Please. <laughs> um, what was your lowest moment in your career? Well, I think probably. Well, the, one was personal, and the other was career. I mean, I lost my wife actually in two thousand and one. And in terms of life experience, that was almost certainly the worst period. Um, but politically, I, I suppose the defeat in 2015 was was pretty awful. But I I did recover from that. Um, and I think the early days of the coalition, I had um, problems with Mr. Murdoch, if you may remember, mm. which we recovered from, but were pretty mm. nasty at the time. Mm. Um, do you prefer tea or coffee? Tea. I don't mind a coffee latte, but um, tea is, 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 I keep me going through the day. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll ask the opposite to my last one. What was your highest point in your career? Um, well, actually getting elected to Parliament in the first place. It sounds quite modest, but... Um, I, you know, I never thought it would happen. Um, I was heading for kind of retirement and a reasonably well-paid job in a multinational company and you know getting into parliament then starting a political career in my 50s was was definitely a high point mm. do you ever have any regrets about not um about not just retiring at 60 and um no no I'm, I'm i'm glad i've kept going um and i don't i don't consider myself retired you you, you know i give you a list of things i do well I, yeah. two, two hours every day actually i spend walking and cycling i mean i did keep very fit and my wife and I do a lot of uh, very physical things mm. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite uh, film or book yes I read extensively I'm sort of Scandinavian noir I'm very much into it at the moment um, uh, 
films I'm watching the you know the Thursday evening BBC Four series all the film greats I think Casablanca was an absolutely wonderful film um, and um, just a final question, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? You can pick at which, at which age you give the advice to. Well, I think if I was, you know, leaving university now and, you know, not really quite sure what I wanted to do, um, I, I think the advice is to be persistent and not give up. And, you know, I, I, advice I always give to young students is that the best qualification to be a successful politician is stamina. It's not intelligence or eloquence, I mean, they obviously help, um, but actually you, you, it's the stamina to keep going when things are, things are difficult.